we can survive without self-care. But the question is, do we want to survive in a depleted state? Everybody, Emily Abadi here. You are listening to another installment of Hurdle Moment from Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course, have some fun along the way. Today, talking about something that is so imperative when it comes to your overall wellness, and that is self-care. And to do that, I am bringing in Michelle Seeger. She's an award-winning researcher at the University of Michigan. She's also a health coach with almost 30 years studying how to create sustainable changes in healthy behaviors that can survive the complexity and unpredictability of the real world. She's also the author of the book, The Joy Choice, which is all about cultivating the in-the-moment decisions that support self-care, health, and well-being. A lot of that, which we are jamming about for today's episode. We are chatting about decision disruptors that can threaten our self-care plans. According to Michelle, there are four of them, and we're going to break those down because when you are better informed about what could be standing in between you and a more foolproof self-care plan, then you might be better at keeping up with it and in turn, taking care of you. Loved this convo. Grateful to Michelle for her time. Make sure you're following along on social at Hurdle Podcast. I'm over at Emily Abadi. And with that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Michelle Seeger. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm so good. Before we get into talking about all of the reasons why self-care is uber important and how to protect that energy, why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory? Talk to us about how you got into this work. Sure. Well, something very specific did happen. Um, in 1993, 1994, I was uh, conducting my first randomized trial as a master's student in kinesiology. And we were looking to see if cancer survivors far out of treatment, like five years out of treatment, um, if they would benefit psychologically from exercising. And so um, we found what we were, what we hypothesized was that the group that exercised did significantly reduce their depression and anxiety compared to the group that didn't. And I thought that was the end of the story. But part of our study design was to call um, the participants back about three months after the study ended and talk to them and give them the measures again. And I distinctly remember, I mean, this was almost 30 years ago, you know, these people were sitting around smiling, talking, and I thought that we hadn't just done great research. I thought we had also really helped people live their lives better, but I was wrong. (laughs) 
because almost everyone stopped exercising when our study had ended all those months before. And so I was really curious, like, why would you stop exercising? And they said, Michelle, do you have all day? I have a job. I have a family. I have this, that, and the other. I have to help my aging parents. And it, be, it became very clear to me that these people had um, stopped exercising, not because they were cancer survivors, but because they were simply busy adults living their lives. And I thought, wow, if people who faced a life-threatening illness do not feel comfortable prioritizing their own self-care through behaviors like physical activity, then we have a real problem in society. And that's when I had this light bulb moment. It's like, that's my problem and I'm going to solve it. And so everything I've been, everything I've done since that time has been in service of understanding what really gets in people's way when the rubber hits the road on a, day, on a daily basis from a scientific perspective, but also as a health coach. As you said, there are so many different reasons why we may not make time, not just for movement in our day-to-day, -day, but other important things that can benefit our health, like eating well, perhaps, or even prioritizing sleep. Like There are just so many different things that sometimes fall by the wayside when life gets hectic. That's right. And, you know, it's, it, you're right. It's true for any self-care behavior. We could add meditation to that list. You know, we could add so many things. Um, I do, I do think it's important to say when it comes to self-care behaviors that I, I believe and contend that healthy eating and exercise are kind of in a class of their own, um, and, and come with unique disruptors, if you will. But but you're but you are right. I mean, when it comes to self-care, it's just hard to keep it in the forefront of our lives and on the top of our priority list. That's so interesting that you feel as though that they're in a class of their own. Yeah. And so here's the reason why. In society, we have primarily been socialized to eat better and exercise more as a way to lose weight. And um, so what that does, that overarching purpose of weight loss then becomes the reasons why we exercise and try to change our diet. It, it, and those meanings become intricately integrated into our minds and bodies when we exercise and when we change our eating patterns. And unfortunately, because weight loss is also wrapped up with internalized stigma and weightism and, and sense of failure and, and body shame and self-consciousness, all of that, we bring all of that to our eating and exercise um, projects. And so we don't bring that to sleep. We don't bring that to meditation. And, and new theories and research on changes in eating and exercise uh, are, are really about how this past experience and history with eating and exercise in our brains influence, influences the choice we are about to make right now. Mm. We bring all of that to our decisions right now. And we don't bring those same things to our choices about when we go to sleep or when we get off social media or when we're going to meditate. Mm. Clearly here, 
we are getting to the theme that self-care, super, super important. Why don't we start off before we get into these disruptors by talking about the why? Why is it important? What happens if we don't make that time for ourselves? Right. So what happens when we don't make time for our self-care? We are physiological beings, right? And so we need we to we can serve we can survive without self-care. But the question is, do we want to survive in a depleted state? Our bodies, our cells have to regenerate. We we need renewal and recovery. And so if we don't practice consistent self-care, and, and it's different for different people, right? And and people have different self-care hierarchies. You know, my self-care hierarchy, my foundational self-care behavior is sleep. But for my husband, it's physical activity. He will skimp on sleep to get his exercise first thing in the morning. So we all have our different priorities when it comes to which self-care behavior has the most bang for the self-care buck. But the bigger picture is that if we if we do not prioritize our own self-care then we get depleted you know that can lead to so many things um from feeling depressed and anxious and stressed to um how our bodies you know break down if if they're in a depleted state now i am not an md i'm not a medical doctor so i can't speak to the you know to the the breakdown of the physiological parts of the body. But, you know, from a very general point of view, we know that our brain really needs sleep and that when we don't get it, it isn't good for our brain's functioning. So, but, you know, that's all health stuff. And my research suggests that focusing on those types of broad health reasons for self-care in theory, makes sense and sound good. And most people would endorse and say, yeah, I care about being healthy. But when it comes to fitting it in and making it a consistent priority, that's not the reason that most people, um, that would motivate most people to do it day in and day out. And those reasons, though, the purpose and why relates to how we feel and function every day, period. It's so interesting, right? Because even going back to what you were saying at the top of our conversation, noting that these people didn't feel as though that great feeling was enough for them to come back to prioritizing movement. But for some, some crave it. Is there a difference between those two types of people? Well, it's it's a it's a complicated answer because Absolutely, you know, there are genetic differences between, you know, that are, I don't think are well understood at all. This is at the, at the most beginning level. There are some people that might be more inclined to want to sit on the couch. And then there are some people who just can't stop moving. And those are some, you know, predispositions. But, you know, I think more to your question is, why do some people love running and some people, you know, want to run away from running? And that that really gets to the ways in which we've been socialized to think about running or exercise or walking, the experiences we've had with it. You know, a lot of people who've had negative experiences, whether they were forced to run in PE or while they were um, on a sports team, you know, 
I remember uh, trying to be on the swim team, but the actual act of being, for, you know, swimming fast and having to swim fast to be on the team, it left me hating swimming. You know, that, you know, that's just my own experience. But, you know, I've been working with people for almost three decades with this question and, and, I see that the past experiences, and of course, it's what the, the new theories say too, we carry these past experiences. So someone who has had positive experiences with running, like me when I was 13 years old, man, that is a, a way for me to take care of myself. But for someone else, it feels punishing. And how can actually, how can something that feels punishing constitute self-care? Right. Right. So the question then becomes, I mean, this is not in the direction that we are going to go, but a side note here is how does that reframing happen then? Wow. It, it, it can happen. It needs to happen on a societal level. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to say that I'm beginning to see the industry leaders, you know, the, or the trade organizations that inform how um, gyms and clubs around the world do things, you know, uh, it used to be called URSA. Um, now it's got a different name. Uh, I think it's global health and fitness. They, the, the huge ship in industries are starting to change because they've discovered that the approach, the method has creating, has created experiences and meanings that only a small minority of the population resonate with. And everyone else, the vast majority of people have been left behind. So, you know, that the answer is that we, the best solution is going to be when new marketing messages from, you know, from the shoe companies and um, the athletic gear companies start attracting and speaking to those of us who've been left behind, which again is the majority now on an individual level as a health coach, you know, that's what I do is I help people reframe the meaning and purpose and experience of um, self-care behaviors like physical activity. And the most important part is to start by helping people understand that, you know, if they hate exercise and they haven't been successful sticking with it over time, it's not their fault. People mm. think it's their fault. They think there's some innate flaw. I'm not athletic enough. I'm lazy. You know, my friends and my family members, I see them running and training for marathons and going to the gym regularly, but I've never been successful and people blame themselves. It couldn't be further from the truth. The reality is that the system, the whole, our whole societal approach, both out of healthcare, um, out of the fitness industry has has set most people up to fail. And again, there's no, I'm not pointing fingers at the industry and clinicians. It is simply the way our society has evolved in the way we value things like physical activity. And it's been focused on um, weight, physiological doses, you know, doses of exercise that's going to get optimal cellular responses. And, but that doesn't, when we leave the lab and the great research that's been done and we go into our real lives and how human beings make decisions, there's this huge disconnect. Um, and so to make the connection, we have to actually, to reframe it, we, um, those of us in the field who are working with people and helping organizations work with people, 
um, we have to reframe it for them. And it starts with helping people understand that the system is broken. It's not them. Right, right. And so this easily segues us into talking about these decision disruptors, the things that can get in the way when it comes to taking care of ourselves. So kick us off with the first one, and that is temptation. Yes. So temptation. Can I say one thing before we jump in? Please. Okay. So why do we care about the disruptors to our decisions? Um, The reason is, is because if we care about creating changes that can last with our healthy eating and exercise and other self-care behaviors, the way that happens, what drives sustainability is making decisions that consistently support our greater goals day in and day out right now, right now, right now, and right now. So if we don't know how to navigate that which gets in our way, that which When our plans go awry, which is what derails us and takes us off the path of lasting change, if we don't know how to navigate those, what I'm calling choice points, um, the challenges to our plans for self-care, healthy eating, exercise, meditation, going to sleep at a certain time, then we can't achieve the consistent decision-making that we need. So I just wanted to contextualize. So the things that get in our way I found um, in my coaching are four primary things. And as you said, you tipped us off temptation. What is temptation as a disruptor to our decisions? Temptation is having an eating plan that's going well. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves at a party. We enter the door thinking we've got, you know, the wherewithal and the commitment to stick to our plan. And then we see that beautiful piece of chocolate cake glistening from across the room and we feel this visceral pull to want to go eat it even though it is completely not on our eating plan or we had a plan after work to go for a run and we walk into our house and that couch and the remote is just seductively calling our name that in 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 its very essence is temptation and I'm sure everyone listening can relate to those types of feelings. They're visceral. But here's what we need to know about temptation. And, and it's, it's what we need to know to help us actually reclaim our power away from the, you know, that seduction. The research, uh, the new research, the new theorizing about our decision-making around eating and ex- exercise situates each choice we're about to make within our past history with eating the cake and getting on the couch or going for the run. And if we're talking about um, the run, for example, and this ties back to something I said earlier, if we have been taunted in PE when we ran, if we feel uncomfortable and overweight when we run, we bring those memories to our right before we make the choice. And that would lead us, that brands um, physical activity in our mind in a really negative way so that when we come to that choice, temptation is more likely to win out in that moment. But by understanding how it works, and instead of feeling like the cake or the couch has power over me, it's pulling me like a magnet, we can say to ourselves, you know what? That's not really the cake. 
that's calling my name. It's actually the, the last time I ate the cake and who I was with. And the very act of bringing self-awareness to what's going on, bringing our, free, our prefrontal cortex into the conversation, it takes away some of the visceral um, experiential pull that we're feeling. So that's temptation. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsor at Gooder. It's that time of year where I am rarely stepping outside without a pair of sunglasses in tow and more often than not, I'm heading to do a lot of things at once, which means I'm tackling a workout, then I'm running errands, then maybe I'm running to meet a friend for lunch or dinner or who knows what. So all of this to say, I need a pair of sunnies that can move with me. And that is where Gooder comes in the clutch. I love how these are no slip, no bounce and polarized. Plus they have a different shape and style for every taste. If you're someone that likes brights, then you can reach for a style that they call the, wait for it, electric Dinotopia Carnival, or if you're a little bit more tame like me when it comes to your sunglasses go-tos, maybe their sleek aviator style, the Operation Blackout, could be the right pair for you. Trust me, so many options, plus they start at just $25, and I'm going to make that offer even sweeter for you because we're giving hurdlers 15% off their sunglasses by heading on over to gooder.com slash hurdle. Again, that is G-O-O-D-R.com slash hurdle. Use code hurdle15 at checkout for 15% off. Again, that's hurdle15 at checkout at gooder.com slash hurdle. You know, the thing that's interesting to me, because I definitely and certainly relate to what you're saying, this uh, kind of throwback moment to if you had a problem running the mile in middle school, then you may feel some kind of way about running as an adult. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know many people that didn't have a problem running the mile in middle school. Like everyone was traumatized by their middle, their high school mile experience. It comes back to, are you going to choose to reframe that and take agency over what can happen next. But yes, exactly what you're saying. It all totally makes sense to me. So I know that the next one here, the next disruptor, rebellion. Talk to us about rebellion. Yes. So rebellion, you know, speaks for itself too. It's when we initiate a behavior out of a should, which we've been taught to do in society, it's human nature to want to reclaim our freedom. So when we feel like I, I, can't eat that cake, or I should eat this other thing that I don't actually want to eat, um, or that isn't going to be as good, or I should take that run, that it we are literally putting our choice in it. You know, it's going to be a boomerang where we just go in the exact different direction than we started out with. And it, you know, there's this theory called reactance theory, and there's just been tons of research on this. So if we initiate a change out of shoulds, whether it's because we feel that we're, you know, we don't like, uh, we we don't meet the mold, our doctor is admonishing us, whatever the should is, it influences and and, and in a very non-optimal way, it gets us to do the opposite. So that's rebellion. And, you know, people probably resonate with that too. Before we move into accommodation, I just want to say, it is easy to say that People, people, 
it, it is our choice to do things, but if we don't understand that it's not our fault, it's hard to have agency with that. So I do think part of let part of people developing the agency to say, yeah, that was PE and I don't have to let that control the rest of my life. They need to understand that the feelings are from PE and then they can say, okay, this is then what do I want to do now? And a really great solution to the, what do I want to do now is toss running out and take a walk, do rollerblade, you know, do something that you're choosing to do because you want to do it and it meets your preferences. So I, I, I want to say that it's not quite as easy when you've got this kind of history, but when you name it, as Dan Siegel says, you tame it. And that's a key part of how we reframe. When you um, name it, you tame it. I like that. So should I move on to the next? Let's move on to the next. Okay. So accommodation is a little different because this has to do, this This goes back to what got me into this field almost 30 years ago. It has to do with um, what the cancer survivors told me. Accommodation is when we consistently put, not sometimes, when we consistently put our own self-care needs behind the needs of other people and projects. And um, let me give you a, can I tell you a short story about Please accommodation? Please do. So, um, this is, I have two stories. One's about exercise and one's about eating. I'll start with the exercise story. I was brought in to train clinicians um, in a health system. They had a new building with a free state-of-the-art gym. And I gave this, you know, did the training. Afterwards, the gentleman who had hired me took me aside and he kind of whispered in my ear in a confessional, you know, voice, I, I don't, feel comfortable prioritizing, taking time to exercise. I, I always feel like I should be working. And on the days when I do go exercise, I actually hide behind the pillars on the way to the gym so that other people don't see that I'm hmm. doing it. So let's think about that for a minute. This is a leader in healthcare. There's a gym. He's in charge. He really doesn't have to worry about getting into trouble, yet he has internalized values that say him always working is more important than taking this time for renewal for the reasons that you and I had talked about earlier. So that's accommodation, you know, in a nutshell, when it comes to physical activity. It's deciding not to do something you're about to leave to go to the gym or to take a walk with a friend and someone calls you and needs something from you. Now, these aren't, this isn't like your boss saying, I need this from you in five minutes. This is a request from someone that you care about and respect and want to help. But if you always say, okay, when you're about to leave, well, that means you never get to that important self-care piece. And people do it with eating in different ways, right? They eat something that when they actually don't even want to, just to please someone. Um, and so that is accommodation in a nutshell. It's like when you go out to dinner with a few friends and one person says, why don't we get this? And you may not want that thing, but you also don't want to be the person that's like the downer on that note. So you agree, right? And then you may eat whatever it is. You knew when you got there that you didn't want to go in that direction. And you leave there not really feeling fulfilled or happy that you deviated from where you started. And that is that completely reflects the story that I was going to tell about eating. Yes. 
So, you know, it happens all the time. So one of the things to address accommodation in those types of situations is, I mean, let's just play this out for a minute. Imagine that you're, imagine that you have a should for your eating, even though you may not want to go in that direction. The reason why you don't is because you had recently started this new eating plan and it feels like a should. Um, and you feel all this temptation, like how much easier is it to go along with it when your reason for doing it feels like it's controlling you and you are like, screw you, I'm going to do what I want to do, right? That's the human nature response. But if you're not in that situation, so that sets you up even more, right, to do what you don't want to do. But let's say you are wholly in, 100%, you have ownership over the way you want to eat and you do not want to eat that. In those circumstances, it's, it's, first of all, you most likely have a truly compelling why, like, and it's working for you. You're feeling better. You own your why. So the thing to do is, you know, you, people need to learn to do this because we haven't been taught to do it. It has to do with, you know, social graces and social anxiety, but people can learn to say to their people when they're out, you know, I'm not really into that tonight. I think I'm going to skip it. Or, you know, you guys go ahead and order it. I'm going to pass or I'm going to get this instead. I mean, the thing is, once we start thinking and talking about it and maybe even practicing with a partner or friend, it becomes easier than we we think it is. Right. Taking that step, getting a little uncomfortable in the long haul can actually make you feel better. And that's you taking that agency over your own self-care. And last but not least here, we're going to talk a little bit about perfection. And perfection sets the stage for everything else. It's what promotes all or nothing thinking. So let's go back to your situation. Let's just say, I don't know, what would, give me an example of what that food would be that you don't want to eat. Maybe they want to get a side of fries or everyone wants to go in on fried calamari or something that, and and I want to make sure that I make this clear. I'm not demonizing those foods, but I'm just saying if you went out on a Thursday with your friends and you were hoping or trying to maybe eat a little bit cleaner and you end up in a situation where everyone else is okay eating those things that you didn't want to show up and eat yourself, then it can be a little difficult and a little frustrating. Yeah. Okay. So let's bring perfection to that decision disruptor. So if it's eating like everyone else, eating, following the same pattern or eating, you know, if they, put plates and they, they doled out the calamari, you know, big heap of, on everyone's little appetizer plates. And you feel like I have to eat the whole thing, you know, or I can't have any of it, right? It's this extreme all or nothing that's perfection. And what it does is it, if you're feeling tempted and maybe ideally you, d- you wanted to eat clean and you didn't want the column, right? But then you're with your friends and you want to part- partake in the celebratory evening. And you're like, I do like calamari. We- Perfection doesn't let us say, I'm going to have two pieces of calamari. And, you know, as that's my compromise. So those four things, temptation, rebellion, accommodation, and perfection. And perfection sets the stage for all the rest. They're the noise in our heads. It's the stressful narrative or even unconscious narrative that is going on when we're at this point, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I, I, I was, I didn't, I want to eat clean. I don't want to have calamari, but I really want the calamari. When we can name 
eat those things in the moment, that's, and that is why we pause before we do it. That's why there's a, a decision tool to help people um, do the strategic tactical thinking that enables them to name the decision disruptors or what I call the decision traps so that they can tame them in the moment and make a choice that is more, that they are um, more autonomously choosing, not reacting out of or succumbing to. All of this, so, so interesting. And like you said, so, so helpful because this knowledge helps us better inform the choices that we make going forward so that we can prioritize what it is that we really want. And sometimes you may really want the calamari and that's just fine. Michelle, what else do we need to know? Anything you want to add before we wrap this up with a bow? If people resonated with the decision disruptors or the traps, then they should feel free to go to my website where I have a quiz and they can take it and discover what their true traps are. And by knowing that, they'll be more strategically able to name what's getting in their way when they're at these points of conflict. Um, and, you know, it's on my website. Amazing. So tell the hurdlers, how do they follow along with you? What's that website address? Give us all the details. Sure. It's michelleseger.com, S-E-G-A-R. And if people are intrigued by these ideas, they should also feel free to check out my new book, The Joy Choice, um, and to sign up for my newsletter, which is also there. Amazing. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.